Perhaps my favorite painting of all time is by J.M.W. Turner. The romantic painting depicts a ship sailing in front of both a sunset and an oncoming storm. Turner's use of color is astounding, with nearly every single color of the rainbow present somewhere on the canvas. From a distance, the painting is incredibly beautiful, but as you look closer, strange oddities begin to stand out. A foot emerging from the waves, a shackled hand reaching for the sky, splotches of red in the water, birds circling overhead. The beauty seen from afar turns to tragedy with each new detail found amongst the waves. The title of this painting is The Slave Ship, and the grisly scene depicted is a true one. When faced with an oncoming storm, slave traders would have to dump cargo to lessen the burden of weight on the vessel. Cargo, in this case, was hundreds of human lives, simply tossed overboard into the tempest the weight of their chains eventually dragging them to the bottom of the sea. Turner presented the painting with this inscription, quote, Aloft all hands, strike the topmasts and belay, yon angry setting sun and fierce-edged clouds declare the typhoon's coming. Before it sweeps your decks, throw overboard the dead and dying, never heed their chains. Hope, hope, fallacious hope, where is thy market now? Unquote. In the midst of an elemental tragedy, very much like the brutal scene here in Turner's painting, our story begins. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 37, Landmark. In early 1839, several hundred men, women, and children from Sierra Leone, Africa, were taken prisoner by rival groups and sold to Portuguese slave traders at a fortress on the coast. This fortress, called Fort Lomboco, contained thousands of slaves herded like cattle to their respective auctions. Despite the transatlantic slave trade being declared illegal by several international treaties signed years ago, business here was booming. Among the thousands of slaves in this nightmarish scenario was Sinke. Sinke was a rice farmer with a wife and three children before he was taken. We cannot begin to understand the suffering he must have endured while being transported onto the Portuguese vessel, the Decora, to be taken to Cuba. The suffering of these slaves from an area of Africa called Mende had just begun. They were fed next to nothing and were cramped completely naked into small compartments in the ship. Dozens were tortured and killed along the way. At one point, Sinke watched as several slaves were thrown overboard for simply no reason at all. The real reason was that the slavers planned on collecting insurance money on the slaves by claiming that they had been lost at sea. Eventually, the slave ship reached Cuba, where Cinque and the other Mende were sold to two Spaniards, Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montes. They planned on selling the Mende slaves to various plantation owners in other Caribbean ports. All of the other slaves were packed on board a schooner called the Amistad. After a few days on the ship, Cinque and some other slaves somehow managed to break free of their shackles and chains. Quietly, they released as many slaves as they could before attacking the Spaniards under the cover of night. 
They killed the captain, and a skirmish broke out. The Spaniards fired their muskets, killing several slaves, but none of them had time to reload before the mutineers were upon them. Cinque and the other slaves slaughtered the entire crew, except for Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montes, their technical owners, but now they're prisoners. The Mende ordered the two Spaniards to turn the ship back towards Africa. At first, they did. The Mende monitored them closely to make sure they sailed towards the rising sun. But at night, the Spaniards changed course, instead heading north, in hopes of running into another ship off the eastern coast of the United States. The Amistad sailed for two whole months. The 53 liberated slaves were beginning to run out of water and supplies. Nine Mende had already died of dehydration when the Amistad finally saw land. Believing that they had finally reached Africa, they rejoiced. Senke and some men got in a rowboat and made landfall, desperately searching for water. They eventually found a stream and retrieved water for the rest of the Africans. But upon returning to the Amistad, they were intercepted by the USS Washington of the fledgling United States Navy. The Amistad was actually off the coast of Manhattan. The American vessel sailed alongside the Amistad, and U.S. sailors boarded. The Mende spoke no English, but the Spaniards did. They told the captain of the USS Washington what had happened, but left out the details of where the slaves had been taken from, since the international slave trade was still very much illegal. The Mende tried to explain their situation, but could not overcome the language barrier. The captain of the USS Washington charged the Mende with mutiny and murder, and took them to New Haven, Connecticut to await trial. Men who were free merely moments ago were once again in chains. The captain of the USS Washington took the Africans to Connecticut instead of New York because slavery was still technically legal there. Once there, the captain filed paperwork claiming the slaves as salvaged cargo. The Mende were all piled into the largest cell in the New Haven jail, where they waited for their trial. Abolitionists heard of the Africans' plight, and several prominent abolitionist lawyers arrived in New Haven to assist in any way they could. However, a local Connecticut lawyer by the name of Roger Baldwin was eventually chosen to represent the Africans. Cinque appeared to be the leader of their group, and Baldwin did what he could to communicate with him, with little success. Eventually, abolitionists learned how to count to ten in Cinque's native tongue. They then went to the harbor, counting out loud in the Mende language. By a stroke of luck, a British sailor recognized the language as one he used to speak and approached. His name was James Covey, and he was an ex-slave freed by the British Navy, and he was from the same area where Cinque and the other imprisoned Mende were from. With little time to spare before the court date, Kobe translated Cinque's story to Baldwin. Cinque's harrowing account gave Roger Baldwin plenty to work with. While many abolitionists wanted the lawyer to make the obvious moral argument that Cinque and the other Africans were simply human beings and therefore could not be claimed as Spanish property, Baldwin decided to take a different approach by preparing a coldly logical defense that invoked various international treaties. In January of 1840, all parties appeared before a circuit court in Hartford, Connecticut to argue their respective cases. There were several sides claiming several things. First was the two Spanish slavers, who simply claimed the slaves as property. 
Their argument mostly consisted of the Pinckney Treaty of 1795 between the United States and Spain, which read, quote, all ships and merchandise of any nature which shall be rescued out of the hands of pirates or robbers on the high seas shall be restored in its entirety to the true proprietor." Unquote. Both Spanish diplomats and Southern politicians put pressure on current President Martin Van Buren to simply write an executive order returning the Amistad and the Africans to Spain. However, Van Buren assured them the courts would side in the slave owner's favor. A second party involved was U.S. sailor Thomas R. Gedney, the captain of the USS Washington, who claimed salvage rights for the Amistad, arguing that it was found in United States territory. The salvage rights, under international admiralty law, stated that whoever first discovered a vessel on the high seas was entitled to the cargo on said vessel, which he argued included each and every one of the slaves. The final party involved was the slaves themselves, backed by a collective of abolitionists calling themselves the Amistad Committee. Cinque and the Mende had to argue that they were not in fact property or cargo, but were free Africans that could not be justly returned to the Spaniards or be claimed as salvage. During the trial, the Spaniards' lawyer argued that the Mende slaves were no different than any other beast of burden and presented the legal document of ownership from Cuba. They also focused on the violence of the mutiny and went into great detail of how the escaped slaves killed the crew of the Amistad. Their whole argument focused on the violence and illegality of the mutiny while disproving that the slaves had been born across the Atlantic. When it was the defense's turn, Roger Baldwin argued for hours that the Mende were, in fact, native Africans, citing their language and telling the story of the capture and auction at the slave fortress Fort Lomboco, which the Spaniards denied even existing. Baldwin avoided an emotional appeal to the humanity of the Africans and instead focused on the international illegality of slavery and proving that the slaves were indeed from the continent of Africa. Eventually, after much deliberation, the judge sided with the Mende. The Spanish slavers were convicted of illegal slave trading and were taken from the courthouse in chains. Upon seeing their captors, who had bought them at auction, be carried out in chains, must have felt amazing. The Africans were overjoyed, but President Martin Van Buren, under immense pressure from the Spanish crown and from the southern slave owners, and in an attempt to win re-election, appealed the decision. The Africans' legal fight for their freedom was far from over. Cinque and the Africans were confused as to why they had to argue their case again. As they waited, frustrated, several Mende fell ill and died in prison. The jailer broke protocol and allowed the Africans out of their cells to bury their own dead in the cemetery and hold a traditional ceremony. As the second court date loomed, their chances weren't looking as good as the first time around. This judge had been handpicked by President Martin Van Buren, and many Southerners were exceptionally confident the abolitionist side would lose. They were so confident, in fact, that a ship was waiting in the harbor to send the Africans back to Cuba the moment they lost their appeal. Some prominent abolitionists, looking at their chances, revealed in secret that perhaps losing this case would help their cause more than if they won. 
that maybe these Africans could serve as martyrs for the abolitionist cause, sacrifices for the greater good. Roger Baldwin, on the other hand, was furious at these remarks and went to court assuring Sinke and the other Mende that they would soon again be free men. In court, Baldwin argued both confidently and eloquently, sticking to the unlawful nature of the international slave trade, along with providing as much evidence that he could that these slaves were taken from their homeland in Africa, not born in Cuba, as the Spaniards had claimed. The judge's verdict was in. The district court ruled that the captain of the USS Washington would be granted salvage rights for the cargo on the Amistad, but that the Africans did not fit that definition. Against overwhelming odds, they had won again. James Covey turned to the Africans to interpret how the judge had ruled, but they were already jumping with excitement from the celebration of the abolitionists with them. I wish I could say that the Africans finally gained their freedom and returned to Africa. If only things were that easy. Southern politicians, including John C. Calhoun, were furious and told President Van Buren that his chances of winning re-election would drop to zero if those slaves were freed. In short, Van Buren caved. The case was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Sinke and the other Mende returned again to prison, crushed. But Roger Baldwin assured Sinke and the other Africans that they would be leaving their cells soon, hopefully as free men and not as slaves. As Baldwin and the abolitionists prepared for their legal battle at the Supreme Court, they decided they could use some help, some very famous help. They requested the aid of John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States and the son of the second president of the United States, was in his mid-70s at the time the Amistad case made it to the Supreme Court. Even after losing his re-election bid to Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams continued his political career by serving in Congress. While president, he remained fairly neutral, but post-presidency, he used every ounce of power he had left to fight slavery in every way he could. He wrote this in his personal journal, quote, We must bring about a day prophesied when slavery and war shall be banished from the face of the earth. It is among the evils of slavery that it taints the very sources of moral principle. It establishes false estimates of virtue and vice, for what can be more false and heartless than this doctrine, which makes the first and holiest rights of humanity dependent upon the color of one's skin? Unquote. John Quincy Adams was soon a champion of the abolitionist cause, which is why it was so critical to get his support in the Amistad case. After being asked, Adams agreed not only to help preparing a defense, but also agreed to help argue their case in front of the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court that he didn't even get to appoint a justice to, due to political maneuvering of the opposing party. Some things never change. Abolitionists spared no expense providing Roger Baldwin and John Quincy Adams whatever they deemed necessary to properly prepare for their argument in front of the highest court in the land, a court in which seven of the nine Supreme Court justices owned slaves themselves. They knew this would not be easy. On February 23, 1841, Attorney General Henry D. Gilpin began the oral argument phase before the Supreme Court. 
he argued his side for only two hours and focused mostly on the Spanish document of ownership. Afterwards, Roger Baldwin gave a fine-tuned argument in response, citing the various international treaties violated by the Spanish slavers and by attempting to prove the birthplace of the slaves was not in Cuba, but in Africa. He also called forth several British officers whom had seen Fort Lomboco, the massive Portuguese slave trading fortress in Sierra Leone, the very same fortress that the Van Buren administration claimed did not exist. The next day, John Quincy Adams rose to speak. The old, bald man with massive white mutton chops assured everyone that he was here on behalf of the Africans, emphasizing the word African, of course, and not on behalf of the executive or legislative branches, both of which he'd been a part of. He spoke for a full eight and a half hours, and unlike Roger Baldwin, waxed poetic about the true nature of freedom. He dove into the philosophy of liberty and what the American Revolution, having lived through it, was truly fought for. Associate Justice Philip Barber's sudden illness and death that night delayed the court's proceedings. The Africans waited desperately in their cell, stir-crazy and ready for the verdict. Imagine them sitting there, in a foreign land, so far from home, waiting to hear if they were allowed to live out their lives as free people, or if they were going to be forced to return to a life of slavery. On March 9, 1841, Cinque and the other Mende left their cells for the last time, for they would either return to Cuba in chains or return to Africa as free men. That morning, the Supreme Court delivered their decision. They ruled that Cinque and the Mende were obviously from Africa and did not fit the description of property because they had been, quote, unlawfully kidnapped from their native land and forcibly and wrongfully carried on board to the slave ship Amistad, unquote. The Africans were truly and finally free. The courtroom was filled with shouts of glee and tears of joy. Abolitionists rejoiced throughout the North, after the decision, Cinque thanked Baldwin profusely for arguing on their behalf for so long. Baldwin told them in their native tongue, he was just sorry it took so long for justice to prevail. Some Africans presented John Quincy Adams with a Bible that they had been taught to read in prison. In it was a letter which read, quote, We are about to go home to Africa. We go to Sierra Leone first, and then we reach Mende very quickly. When we get to Mendy, we will tell the people of your great kindness. We shall take the Bible with us. It has been a precious book in prison, and we would love to read it now that we are free. Mr. Adams, we want you to make a present of this beautiful Bible. Will you please accept it? And when you look upon it or read it, remember us, your grateful clients. Signed, the Mende people. Unquote. All of the now legally free Africans were taken to live with abolitionists until they raised enough money for a ship to take them back to Africa. They stayed in various abolitionist homes in Farmington, Connecticut, known to many as the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. Soon, all surviving 39 Mende, first slaves, then mutineers, then prisoners, then defendants, now free made their return voyage to Africa. Less than a decade later, 
the claims made by the plaintiffs that the Lomboko slave fortress did not exist were now accurate, because the British Navy finally located it and had it destroyed. The rubble of the immensely profitable slave fortress was another nail in the coffin of the transatlantic slave trade. Stateside, abolitionists celebrated their victory, while slave owners in the South lamented their loss. The enormous divide between the North and the South grew ever wider. Queen Isabella of Spain demanded payment for the slaves taken from the Amistad. She sent letters demanding that payment to the next seven presidents. A payment was never sent. John Quincy Adams kept the Mende Bible for the rest of his life. It now resides in his old home, which is now a historical park. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, the state's first African-American governor, took his oath of office on the Mende Bible when he was sworn in as governor. We don't know the specifics of Sinke's later life. As he sailed with his liberated compatriots back to his home, he sailed off the pages of history. However, we know bits and pieces. Sinke returned home to find his country embroiled in a brutal civil war. When he returned to his village, his wife and children were gone without a trace, believed to have been sold into slavery themselves. His village was soon destroyed by the Civil War. He was not greeted with an easy life back in his homeland, but he was a free man. Stories of Sinke were told by abolitionists and slavers for years to come. He had become an icon, a figure embodying powerful, sometimes contradictory symbols and meanings. Americans both lionized him and demonized him. Sinke became a bloody boogeyman, or a noble savage, or a natural prince, or a towering symbol of freedom, depending on who you asked. The Amistad case was a landmark case for the Supreme Court of the United States, and was symbolic of the supposed freedom and justice granted to all people. But with the Dred Scott decision and the U.S. Civil War on the horizon, there was still a very, very long way to go on the quest for a more perfect union. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. The Slave Ship by J.M.W. Turner, the one I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, can be found with a simple Google, but it's also the cover photo of every one of my social media accounts if you want to take a look. It's an absolutely profound piece of art. If you like what I'm trying to do here with Historium, there are tons of ways to help out. You can simply follow Historium on pretty much any form of social media. You can leave a rating in whatever app you use to listen. You can donate on Patreon to help me produce more content. Or there's always the old-fashioned way. You could tell someone you know about Historium or share your favorite episode with a friend. Time and time again, that's the way people check out new podcasts. If you could do that, that would be amazing. As always, thanks for listening.